funding for NJ Spotlight News provided by the members of the New Jersey Education Association, making public schools great for every child, and RWJ Barnabas Health. Let's be healthy together. Tonight on NJ Spotlight News, a bombshell investigation detailing unethical conduct at New Jersey's addiction recovery centers. We saw dangerous behavior that could leave those who were seeking to get healing to leave worse than when they came in. Plus, deal or no deal. What we need are real solutions on the border and real solutions that will help the 11 million undocumented gain a pathway to citizenship. A bipartisan border security bill to overhaul the nation's immigration policy is teetering tonight, and the impact can be felt here in New Jersey. Also, calls for a ceasefire. Community advocates urge Newark City Council to support a ceasefire resolution as the death toll in Gaza surpasses 27,000. It is long overdue for the city of Newark and the United States to call for a permanent ceasefire. And off the hook, Atlantic City casinos have no legal obligation to stop compulsive gamblers from rolling the dice. NJ Spotlight News begins right now. From NJ PBS Studios, this is NJ Spotlight News with Brianna Venozzi. Good evening and thanks for joining us this Wednesday night. I'm Brianna Venozzi. Some of New Jersey's most vulnerable residents are being preyed on by the very system designed to help them. That, according to a scathing new report by the State Commission of Investigation, revealing widespread fraud and corruption in the addiction recovery industry, which the report says has ballooned into a multi-billion dollar business. The 106-page investigation cites unchecked abuses by so-called professionals, the owners and operators of these businesses, who were accused of caring more about profits than getting their clients clean and sober. As senior correspondent Brenda Flanagan reports, the investigation chronicles how the fraud and wrongdoing were found at every stage of the recovery process, sometimes starting as early as an overdose victim's hospital bedside. I mean, this devastated my family. We're still feeling the effects of it in every way. I can't even tell you. I mean, it, sh it shattered us. Nicole DiMaria says her sister Georgine struggled to find treatment, dragged their whole family down a dark rabbit hole into the addiction recovery industry, a business she says prioritized profit over patients. DiMaria testified before the State Commission of Investigation about her family's nightmare and welcomes the agency's call for reforms. More transparency more accountability, um, looking into these owners and and their backgrounds. Yeah, all really crucial stuff. We have these criminals in hiding in plain sight that they should be going after. Alyssa Tierney, who's in recovery, recognizes the abuses outlined in the SCI report. It revealed widespread fraud, unethical conduct, and wrongdoing were found in businesses at every stage of the recovery process, with millions of dollars squeezed out of desperate families. Tierney wants lawmakers to target so-called body brokering. People that are preying on um, families with private insurance and getting them into treatment centers 
just so they can make a profit. It doesn't, and it doesn't matter if the treatment center is a good fit for the person. They don't care. They just want to get you in so they can get a kickback. Companies are involved in patient brokering corporations. We also found nonprofits involved in uh, patient brokering sober living homes. SCI counsel Lisa Cialino says state law bars patient brokering by individuals, but the SCI report recommends banning it industry-wide and increasing fines from the current $10,000 to at least $50,000. Other reforms include creating strict licensing standards and oversight for so-called peer recovery coaches, setting tougher rules for licenses, financial audits and criminal background checks at treatment centers, and cracking down on sober homes, particularly unlicensed ones that cram recovering clients together. Maybe some are okay, but a lot of them we saw, you know, bad drug use issues, um, bad living conditions, a bunch of people packed into one room. The sober homes are overseen by DCA, Community Affairs, and um, it doesn't seem like, you know, that's currently effective. DCA responded, stating we are aware of and reviewing the report and taking any allegations of fraud and ethical misconduct seriously. We don't have further comment at this time. SCI Chair Tiffany Williams Brewer says the clock is ticking. We're striving to shine a light uh, on this issue, particularly in light of the level of funding uh, that is being dedicated uh, now in our state to the addiction and rehabilitation industry. More than a billion dollars in opioid settlement monies headed to New Jersey. The SCI doesn't want it poorly spent. We saw some egregious examples of failure to protect some of the most vulnerable in their time of need. We saw instances of, of greed. We saw instances of impropriety. We saw dangerous behavior that could leave those who were seeking to get healing to leave worse than when they came in. Dee Maria's sister succumbed to her illness, her family's urging lawmakers to enact the reforms that might have saved her life. This is a devastating disease, and people really need to start treating it that way and not looking upon it with shame. I'm Brenda Flanagan, NJ Spotlight News. A bipartisan border deal that includes foreign aid for Israel and Ukraine was doomed before it even reached the U.S. Senate floor today. The $118 billion bill package includes dramatic changes to immigration law that GOP members initially backed but are now rejecting under pressure from Donald Trump, who's making it a campaign issue. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer will put forward a standalone package that includes only emergency funding for the two war-torn countries while nixing the immigration component. As senior political correspondent David Cruz reports, the debacle is frustrating immigrant rights groups here at home. By the time this report is done, so will the chances be of the immigration side of the National Security Supplemental Appropriations Act of 2024, thus ending the latest attempt at any kind of immigration-related policy change. Despite reports that the immigration side of this bill took months to negotiate, and now appears dead on arrival, most advocates say its death was actually not unwelcome. Certainly it's extremely frustrating, disappointing, deceiving to see the administration that had committed to passing immigration reform, to putting all 11 million immigrants on a pathway to citizenship, undocumented immigrants on a pathway to citizenship in the United States, um, really take 
an entire tome of the Trump playbook um, and try to pass it into law. Sarah Cullinane of Make the Road Action says the president has inherited a broken system, but adds that the proposals in the bill represented a capitulation and a lose-lose for anyone hoping for even the most modest reforms. Absolutely. is a trap. And, you know, the, the legislation would have given ICE the largest budget to detain people in the history of the agency. This is an agency that has proven time and time again to be um, deceitful, to be a violator of human rights. This completely changes the asylum system, makes it much more difficult to apply and would detain asylees. Um, and it also creates numerous problems for immigrants who are already in this country by increasing deportation authority. Congressman Rob Menendez, who sits on the House Homeland Security Committee and co-chairs the Hispanic Caucus's Immigration Task Force, says the idea was to add border enforcement, a Republican priority, to the supplemental as a way to bring GOP lawmakers in on a deal to fund Ukraine and Israel. The original supplemental, you know, was largely enforcement based and was meant to get Republicans on board. When it didn't, they opened it up to the bipartisan negotiation, which got more Republican priorities into the package. And then they didn't even have the they don't seem to have the appetite for that. So, um, you know, it's 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 a challenge. This is clearly an issue that they think has political weight for them and they want to leverage it to their advantage. As evidenced by the Republican defections after former President Trump came out against it. Today, Speaker Johnson, whose tenuous hold on the speakership is subject to the political whims of Trump acolytes in the House, expressed confidence that what remains of the supplemental will make its way through both houses eventually. We're governing here. Sometimes it's messy. The, you know, the framers anticipated that you would have a system where people with very different philosophical viewpoints that come from different parts of the country and different constituencies would have different ideas on how to resolve their problems. But what they also anticipated is that we'd be able to get in a room and arm wrestle over public policy and come to consensus to move the ball forward for the most people. That is what's happening here. You're seeing the messy sausage making, the, the process of democracy play out. And uh, it's not always clean. It's not always pretty. But the job will be done at the end of the day. Maybe, but the one certainty is that immigration will not be a part of it. That discussion, as per usual with this issue, will have to wait. I'm David Cruz, NJ Spotlight News. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is back in the Middle East working to broker a deal between Israel and Hamas for a ceasefire. That would include the release of Israeli hostages who've been held by the militant group for months in Gaza in exchange for more aid to reach Palestinians. But the two sides appear as far apart as ever. Blinken met with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and other top Israeli leaders to continue negotiations, but acknowledged, quote, a lot of work has to be done to reach a deal. Israel has publicly rejected a proposal from Hamas that includes three phases, withdrawing Israeli troops from Gaza, a larger humanitarian effort, and freedom of movement for Palestinians throughout the territory. Israeli officials confirmed the deaths of 31 hostages in Hamas captivity and pressure is mounting from American and Israeli hostage families to secure their release. 
There's also more calls for a permanent ceasefire. Those are growing louder and becoming more local. Members of the Rutgers Newark community rallied today outside Newark City Hall, calling on the council to support a ceasefire resolution and make it only the second major U.S. city to do so. Senior correspondent Joanna Gagas was there. A coalition of several community organizations marched eight blocks from the Rutgers Newark Paul Robeson Center to Newark City Hall today, calling for the city council to pass a ceasefire resolution for Gaza during today's meeting. It's been 123 days of genocide. It is long overdue for the city of Newark and the United States to call for a permanent ceasefire. We are hurting and crying with the people of Gaza. The coalition of protesters included Rutgers Newark undergrad, graduate, and law school students, together with the Council on American Islamic Relations, the National Lawyers Guild at Rutgers Newark, the Newark Water Coalition, a group of anti Zionist rabbis, and Larry Ham's People's Organization for Progress. Ham is running for the U.S. Senate. The coalition says that the resolutions that say the city of Newark calls for an immediate, durable, and sustained ceasefire, an end to the occupation and colonization of all Arab lands, the immediate release of all Palestinian political prisoners and detainees, and the immediate issuance of adequate food, water, and medical resources to Palestine. We have an, a genuine interest here in Newark for a ceasefire, considering the fact that $144 million of New, York, of New Jersey taxes goes towards funding military weapon, weaponry in Israel. Uh, just in Newark alone, about $4 million of that $144 million comes from Newark taxpayer dollars, so our taxes are contributing to an ongoing genocide in Gaza. Is this largely symbolic because clearly Newark City Council is not making international policy? Yeah, 100%. I mean, cities all over the United States are calling for a ceasefire resolution and are passing them um, adamantly. We have cities like San Francisco, Minneapolis, Denver, all passing resolutions. Um, and although they don't have a say in international policy, the resolutions in and of themselves hold power to show the U.S. government that the people of the United States have something to say about the the funding that's going into this genocide. In total, close to 50 resolutions have been passed in 19 states across the U.S. Four of them are municipalities here in New Jersey. Patterson, Haldon, and Prospect Park passed it in December. Jersey City attempted to pass one in December, but it failed. And last night, Union City's Council joined those that passed a resolution, a move that this coalition applauded. They got their city, their town council to pass a resolution last night. The protesters here say they'll be paying attention to who votes for a ceasefire and they're going to remember those names when they turn out to the polls in November. Biden, Biden comes November! Biden, Biden comes November! Newark City Council President LaMonica McIver gave us a statement saying the turmoil in Israel and Gaza is wrong. In Newark, we stand with and pray for families on every side who've lost loved ones and are being traumatized daily by the horrific things the world is watching. We plead with all who love peace and justice to oppose attacks on innocent people as a solution to solve conflict. But she told us there would be no ceasefire resolution on today's agenda. In Newark, I'm Joanna Gagas, NJ Spotlight News.
Newark and state environmental officials are launching an investigation into faulty work on the city's lead service line replacement program. Officials say that in recent weeks, they became aware of three properties in the city where lead service lines had only been partially replaced. State law requires a full replacement. The shoddy work was done by an unnamed third party. The city is weighing filing criminal charges and conducting a citywide audit to determine if other lead line replacement work was affected. That investigation is expected to take several weeks. Newark has replaced more than 23,000 lead service lines since 2019. The work was key, of course, to ending a water crisis in the city that had grabbed national attention. In the years since, Newark's been touted as a national leader on lead remediation. Officials stress that Newark's water quality is still safe because of water treatment that prevents lead pipes and fixtures from corroding. City water customers will receive notices in the mail later this week about the issue. A former New Jersey transit engineer is suing the agency, alleging it ignored his whistleblower concerns about safety hazards on the new Portal North Bridge. Mohammed Nassim was the chief of construction management at NJ Transit and claims he repeatedly raised issues about the bridge's design that could pose a risk to public safety. In return, he says he allegedly faced retaliation, discrimination, and ultimately got fired from his job. The $2.3 billion Portal North Bridge project will replace the existing more than century-old swing span that's notorious for getting stuck and causing commuter delays. It's also an important part of the broader gateway program. NorthJersey.com transportation reporter Colleen Wilson broke the story and joins me now. Colleen, great to see you. Great to chat with you. So walk me through what this engineer says happened to him what the concerns were that he saw. He was overseeing this project. Sure, it sounds like pretty early on uh, in his uh, job at New Jersey Transit overseeing this project that he was starting to see concerns and issues related to the way the ground was settling uh, and soil was settling on the construction site. Uh, it sounds like he started raising these concerns to others at the agency and uh, was kind of getting blown off. Uh, at least it, those are the allegations he makes in his lawsuit. Uh, so uh, the, the concerns began to elevate to uh, you know, issues that could relate to construction equipment moving uh, on the construction site and other kind of delays to the project because of uh, you know, ground stabilization. Uh, and then ultimately, uh, he also raised concerns about how this could impact uh, the current traffic on the bridge that is right next to the construction site, the current Portal Bridge. So not just safety concerns for passengers and the public, but also that this could really slow down the entire project and just wreak some havoc on the area. What did he allege happened when he brought those concerns forward? Yeah, it sounded like according to his uh, you know, lawsuit, his uh, accusations, uh, it really didn't go anywhere uh, as far as at New Jersey Transit that uh, you know, he was accused of not knowing what he was talking about uh, and just kind of silenced and, you know, they started shifting maybe some of his roles to other people, uh, you know, and so it was, it sounded like, you know, he really, he even had his uh, workplace or workspace uh, searched, he said, and then was ultimately fired, uh, you know, pretty unceremoniously, it sounded like. Is this someone who has quite a few years of experience in this field, so his concerns might be deemed credible? 
Sure, yeah. He's, I, think, I believe he has more than 30 years of experience as an engineer, has worked on myriad projects, uh, I'm sure similar to this. And before he was at New Jersey Transit, he was at Amtrak uh, and, and was working on gateway projects and, and uh, certainly involved in that, uh, you know, that realm. Have we seen this in the past? We're, we're talking about a project of this magnitude, both economically but also the, the size of it, where concerns come up during design portions. I mean, is that somewhat typical, or does this situation seem to stand out, at least on its face, from what we can tell in the lawsuit? You know, I don't think I could jump to or speculate from my limited expertise on other similar projects, but one thing that I did think about last night, actually, was uh, the, uh, the the highway near in the highway wall near Philadelphia, uh, I think it was I two ninety five, where that collapsed uh, on because of certain sand that was used and materials that were used, and there was some kind of uh, you know issue there that that wasn't properly investigated. There there had been red flags before that collapse, and so this is not the same thing. But you do have to wonder. These are red flags being raised by someone. What is being done? What are the mitigation? Should this have been caught sooner? Uh, like, should they be encountering this problem the way it is now? And then what impact is it going to have on the future? I mean, there have already been work stoppages because of this, uh, these issues. Right. So how is that going to impact the project uh, long term? Very quickly, since we are talking about the Gateway project, what's the status right now with financing, funding, this is a $16 billion project that has been years in the making. So the $16 billion project that you're talking about is the tunnels program. So the phase one of, of the gateway program is the Portal North Bridge, uh, the Han, uh, Hudson Yards concrete casing project, which is on uh, the New York side, right where the tunnel will enter New York and near Penn Station. And then, of course, the uh, the big one, which is the 16 uh, billion dollar tunnels portion, which is uh, rehabilitating the old tunnels that are there and building two new ones. So that is still in its final phases of getting that this last final uh, federal grant, a 6.88, what's expected to be a 6.88 billion dollar grant from the FTA. So they are in the final phase of getting to that grant agreement. And so what they did uh, January 31st was file its uh, financial plan which outlined who's paying what, basically. And it showed New Jersey is going to pay significantly less than what was first assumed because of the federal contribution. It's just a unprecedented level in US modern history of federal support for an infrastructure project, a mass transit project like this. Uh, Colleen Wilson, NorthJersey.com, The Record. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. It looks like the match is set in New Jersey's closely watched race for the 7th Congressional District seat. Democratic candidate and former U.S. State Department official Jason Blazakis suspended his campaign on Tuesday, clearing the field for Sue Altman to become the presumptive Democratic nominee in the upcoming election. The longtime progressive activist will challenge incumbent Republican Tom Kane Jr. NJ Globe first reported the abrupt exit by Blazakis, who's now endorsing Altman's effort to flip the seat blue again. All eyes are on this race. Democrat Tom Malinowski won the seat during the blue wave in 2018 against four-term Republican incumbent Leonard Lance. But he was unseated back in 2022 by Tom Kane Jr. in a tight race that came after redistricting pushed more GOP voters into the 7th District. In a statement, Tom Kane Jr.'s campaign responded to the matchup saying, quote, voters now have a clear choice between a problem-solving public 
public servant or an activist radical. In our Spotlight on Business report, casinos are off the hook for compulsive gamblers. A U.S. District Court judge this week ruled Atlantic City's casinos aren't legally obligated to prevent so-called problem gamblers from betting. Dismissing a case from gambler Sam Antar, who accused the Borgata and its parent company, MGM Resorts International, of luring him with offers to gamble despite knowing about his addiction. New Jersey has a litany of laws and regulations governing gambling, but according to the judge, none put a legal duty on casinos to cut off compulsive gamblers. The decision mirrors two similar cases where a compulsive gambler and a gambler claiming to have lost money betting while drunk sued unsuccessfully. New Jersey does have a program where patrons can voluntarily self-exclude from in-person or online betting, and casinos do have to honor that list or face fines. Turning to Wall Street, stocks rallied today as new quarterly earnings rolled in. Here's where the markets closed. And that does it for us tonight. But make sure you tune in tomorrow for Chatbox with David Cruz. With the news of the World Cup coming to MetLife Stadium in 2026, will our infrastructure, mass transit systems, and businesses in the Meadowlands be ready for this global event? David puts those questions to Tom Bracken. He's the president of the New Jersey Chamber of Commerce. Check it out Thursday at 6 p.m. on the NJ Spotlight News YouTube channel. And don't forget to download the NJ Spotlight News podcast so you can listen anytime. I'm Brianna Venosi. For the entire NJ Spotlight News team, thanks for being with us. Have a great evening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. NJM Insurance Group, serving the insurance needs of residents and businesses for more than 100 years. And by the PSCG Foundation. Have some water. Look at these kids. How are you? What do you see? I see myself. I became an ESL teacher to give my students what I wanted when I came to this country. The opportunity to learn, to dream, to achieve, a chance to belong and to be an American. My name is Julia Toriani Crompton and I'm proud to be an NJEA member.